Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Sam. So this week we are going back quite a few years actually, which is not loads of years, not like Samantha level, but back to the 70s. And I'm going to be telling you the story of Howard Wilson. So, Samantha, does the name Howard Wilson ring a bell to you at all? It rings a huge bell, but as we say all the time, no idea. So, I'm looking forward to it. Okay, yeah, I was the same. Like, I feel like I had actually thought we'd covered this case already. I don't know if his name sounds like someone we've covered before, but I was like, I think I've done this. And then I started researching it and I was like, no, we've not done this. So, Howard Wilson was born in Govan Hill in 1938. So, if you don't know where Govan Hill is, Govan Hill is an area in Glasgow and it's just between like the south of the River Clyde, between Pollock Shields and kind of like the Gorbals, that kind of area of Glasgow. Um, The population a couple of years ago was about 9,000 people, so in the 70s I'm assuming it'd be less than that, but it's not huge, it's not a big place at all. He grew up with working class parents and he lived in tenement flats and he grew up with not much, like I don't think he was in poverty, but I think he didn't grow up with loads. His dad died when he was young, he died in an army accident. So it was just him and his mum. Now, he went to Glasgow Academy for school, which was actually a private school. So his mum only had to pay to put him through school. Um, And he worked hard at school. He was known to play sports and get on with everybody. However, I think going to Glasgow Academy, which was obviously quite a well-off school, to then get the bus back to Govan Hill was probably not a good thing for him back then. He actually went and done his national service as well and he was described as ambitious and decided he actually wanted to become a policeman. This was obviously unlike a lot of his neighbours as in Govan Hill in that time in Glasgow there was a lot of criminality going on post-war but he actually decided he wanted to be a policeman. Um, He lived near a kind of police station where he'd see a lot of people getting kind of arrested so I think that influenced him. Now, he was actually inducted in 1958 and became a policeman, and he was posted to a central division in Glasgow. Now, he loved his job. He was worked hard, and he actually got commendations during his service. There was only one blip in his service where he was kind of accused of something. I think it was fraud or something like that, but that never held up, so that was kind of not a thing. Um, Howard constantly applied for sergeant, however, was unsuccessful every time. Now, people speculated, was it because he was from Govan Hill was because of his background, whereas he thought that would be a benefit to him because he'd be able to relate to people more. While he was working as a policeman, he got married um, and had a child. I couldn't find the child's name or his wife's name anywhere. Now, in 1968, he actually handed in his resignation to Police Scotland. So I think this was maybe a build-up over the last 10 years and not making sergeant and that's not what he wanted to do anymore. So he actually handed in his resignation. Um, he set up his own business, which was a greengrocer's called The Orchard. And this was in the Mount Florida area of Glasgow. So he also began associating with two men who were actually fellow members of the Bears Den Gun Club. So he attended the Bears Den Gun Club. And that is when he met these friends. So they're Ian Donaldson and John Sim is their names. Now, Ian Donaldson was 31. He was married with three children and he was also ex-police. John Sim was only 22 years of age, but he was also married with a child. Um, For about two years, he'd been a policeman, I think, but he then, um, he was required to resign, sorry, because he was unlikely to become an efficient constable. Um, He then became a prison officer 
but he now went on to do something. I think he was a tradie. Um, guns fascinated him, however, and he made like a hobby of collecting firearms. And in the autumn of 1969, he actually bought a Russian Vostok 22 pistol from a member of the Bears Den Gun Club, and he kept that. But this was legit, like you could do that back then. There was another member of their group that was kind of like a part-time member, like he was kind of in and out, who's Archibald McGeechy. Um, I can't find out much about him, but all I know is he was kind of in the friendship group, kind of not, but I'll explain more about that later. Now, by late 1968, his business began declining. So that was back to Howard Wilson, sorry. He was losing money and his wife was actually pregnant with their second child, so he needed more money obviously they're going to have a second child you're going that's going to cost a lot of money in spring 1969 the group of guys were drinking and playing cards well it was just john ian and howard at this time and the money troubles kind of were in the whole group so one of them actually suggested as a kind of joke like a bank robbery however once they sobered up the next day this became a plan and they began creating a strong plan and a date to host a bank robbery. Um, they invited Archibald McGeechee into this and asked him to be the getaway driver, and he agreed, which I can't really imagine my friends contacting me and being like, do you want to do us a favour? Can you be a getaway driver for a bank robbery? But he did. Um, I would stall the car 100%. Sorry, oh, never asked me. <laughs> yeah, I, you, I would just be in such a fluster. And yeah, so no. So on the 16th of July, 1969, the three men with Archibald driving the car, um, went together to raid a bank. Now, they chose the British Linen Bank in William Wood, Renfrewshire. So that's the bank they chose. Now, they actually dressed in like smart kind of lounge suits, had briefcases, and they arrived at the bank at roughly 3.30pm. Now, Howard was armed with a pistol and the others carried plastic lemon-shaped containers, so like filled with ammonia. So, do you know those like kind of, I remember them back in the time, but they were like what you'd keep lemon juice in or whatever. Now, they pulled nylon stockings over their head and faces and they went into the bank and held up a, a bunch of staff, which were three men and two women, and they were held at gunpoint by Howard Wilson. One of them said to the staff, this will only take a few minutes. If no one does anything silly, no one will get hurt. Now, they actually then tore the telephone off the wall and cut the telephone wires as well. So if someone managed to escape, they wouldn't be able to then call. Um, everyone was forced into the manager's office. Um, and everyone except the manager was then blindfolded and had their wrists bound. The manager was then compelled to open the safe and they took £25,306 from the safe. However, they then kind of got in such a like a state trying to get away and trying to get quickly. They actually left a briefcase behind, and this briefcase contained four thousand four hundred thirty. So all they got was twenty thousand eight hundred seventy six, which I say is all they got. Like that's still a huge amount of money that isn't theirs, but they ended up mistakenly leaving money behind. Um. So by the time they kind of get away, the police don't know anything because there's no lines that have been cut, so they're already completely away from the area. Um, so the bank actually had to go like to a next door neighbour business to actually phone this in. So there was no one left at the scene of the crime by the time the police got there. Now, despite, despite an extensive hunt, weeks passed without any progress in this case. So they basically got away with it, which is probably because they all knew how to escape the police. Like they were police, so they knew what to do. They didn't buy anything big, like no one bought new houses, no one bought new cars, no one bought anything flashy. They basically just continued living with their day to day. Now, after they'd done the robbery, they went back to Howard's, shared the money, and then literally carried on with their normal lives. Like, I find that wild how people do that after all sorts of crimes. Like, I feel like I would be constantly on edge that, like, the everyone knew, like, the police knew and were watching me and, and knew and, like, spent this money. But they carried on as normal. 
So in December this year, they realised they run out of money again. So obviously 20,000 split between four, like what, 5,000 each, that's not going to do loads if your business is in like dire need of help. So they decided to do another bank robbery and their choice this time is a Clydesdale Bank in Bridge Street, which is in Renfrewshire, just outside of Glasgow. Now, Archibald told the other three men he didn't want any part of their criminal activities this time. Like, he didn't see the need to do another one. He had the money from the last one. Like, I think if everyone, his financial situation was okay. So he was like, I don't need to do this. Um, He actually later, after this, disappeared and is presumed murdered. Um, he just vanished into thin air. Rumours are that he's in the Clyde as the Kingston Bridge was under construction, so they believe he was potentially chucked into the Clyde where that was all getting done. But yeah, he has never been seen to this day. So potentially he was a weak link, so that's why they felt like they maybe needed to kill him or someone's felt they needed to kill him. But yeah, I have no more information on that. So that is just up to your own imaginations. On the 29th of December, 1969, the youngest member of the gang... um who was John at the time, called the bank and basically was interviewed by the account, accountant sorry, with regard to opening an account with like a plant hire business. So he pretends he's there for like a business thing. And before hanging up the call, he says he'll come back with two friends. So this one's different. They're not just marching in there. They're going in for an appointment. So at 3.15 the next day, they go into the bank. They were unmasked this time, but they had like a pistol, a dagger and a knife with them. They also had several pillowcases, some string and two suitcases. So the manager at the bank at the time was called Dr. Fleming and he was actually out of office. So Mark Mackin was the assistant manager and he takes them through to the manager's office and then basically he's thrown aside, the door's closed. Um, he has a gun pressed to his head and is basically told, if we have full cooperation, no member of staff will be harmed. And basically they then put a pillowcase over his head and his hands are bound. Now, Mr. Fleming returns. He's come back to the office and he's entered his office to find his assistant manager at gunpoint. So he is then basically put a pillowcase over his head and he's has his hands are bound as well. Sorry. So that's both him and the assistant manager now like this. Now, in the bank at the time, basically unaware of the situation, was a man, two girls, a member of staff and a customer. And basically they then come barging out of the manager's office and held everyone at gunpoint. No one made a move and they kind of just waited and then were all thrust into the manager's office again where they all had pillowcases put over their heads and their wrists were bound. So the same procedure that they always do. Now, wildly, while this was all happening, a woman called Margaret basically arrived at the door with her two-year-old son in the pram and knocked on the bank door. So she's trying to get into the bank. So one of the group, I don't know who it was, went... And basically, the minute she stepped inside, she was put at gunpoint into the manager's office um, and her son came in with her. However, they forgot one crucial step with Margaret. They forgot to bound her hands. So when they all leave the room, she starts untying everybody. However, she gets caught and they threaten to shoot her and her son. But I think everyone pleaded them not to. So they didn't. So the safe was open and all the notes in it contained were like they were basically put into like three leather cases um, but then I think this time after their loss with the briefcase last time they got greedy and there was a large quantity of like silver coins in the safe so they basically took all of them as well. Um, another member of staff was told to unlock drawers under the counter and the silver coins were placed into a black metal box and several canvas bags and then they basically left. So in this time all they got was 14,212 so that is still a huge amount of money and but between three, it's actually less than they got last time. Um, so from that moment, like, they needed to get quickly. They didn't have a getaway driver. So they went 
high speed towards Glasgow and basically about 4pm got on to Howard Wilson Street, which was Allison Street. And this is about 200 yards from Craigie Street Police Office. So really not far. The three guys basically start carrying the money into the tenement close at 51 Allison Street. And they had to make two journeys from the car to his house. But the second journey they're actually seen by Inspector Andrew Hislop, who is a long serving officer and he was 44 at the time. Now, Inspector Hislop and Constable John Sellers, who are both of the Southern Division, were in a police panda car and had just emerged from the rear of the police station. So they were heading out onto Allison Street and they were in traffic, so the car had to stop. And while it was stationary, Inspector Hislop saw the three men, one carrying a black metal box and each of them carrying like huge suitcases. So he saw this and he's like, mm, this doesn't look right to me, which he's absolutely right. That does not look right at all. So he decides to kind of go and have a like, for a kind of look at what's going on so they park up um neither of these um officers by the way are aware of the bank raid so the bank raid has not made it to like common news yet so they're not aware that a bank has been raided and that's what they're looking for they just think this whole situation looks a bit suspicious um inspector hislop actually knows Howard with uh, Wilson, sorry, from the Central Division. Um, and he had a kind of suspicion that the men he was then with were involved in crime. So that's why he was like, mm, right, OK. Um, Inspector Hislop wasn't a fan of Howard and had heard whispers that he was up to no good since leaving the police. So before he actually gets involved, he calls for backup because he's thinking, OK, they've stolen something here. Howard notices him, so actually calls him over in a friendly manner and invites him up to the house. So they spoke in good terms and Hislop asked to look into the suitcases. So he's expecting stolen goods, like, you know, this is around the time of like people stealing things and then selling them off for more money. So that's what he was kind of expecting to find. So he then opens the suitcase and sees all the money. He looks up from the suitcase and there's Howard Wilson pointing a gun at his head. So Inspector Hislop says, don't be a bloody fool, man. Because, of course, like, yeah, doing a bank heist is fine, but you're now going to, what, kill a police officer. So Howard Wilson pulls the trigger. However, there was a click. The gun had jammed. So he then clears obstruction and again takes a name basically but this is when inspector has almost realized that howard wilson's trying to kill him so he attempts to knock the gun upwards but it was too late and basically howard's gun fired and the bullet goes into the left side of his face and penetrates inspector hislop's neck so hislop of course collapses bleeding out and he didn't lose consciousness consciousness sorry but he's unable to move like he's just been shot in the face um backup came so we've now got detective constable john campbell detective constable angus mckenzie and constable edward barnett so the sound of the shooting also brings ian donaldson who's one of the three men into the hall and when he saw what happened he actually just panics and runs away from the house like he's all for being a bank robber he doesn't mind that but he's like i am not becoming a murderer or getting involved with like injuring police now, the same sound obviously brings Constable Barnett to this um, door to the kitchen and he is shot directly through the head. He's mortality, mortally wounded, sorry, and he lay in the hall just a few feet away from Inspector Hislop. Constable Barnett has obviously fallen there, so then Detective Constable McKenzie comes to the door and he is also shot in the head. Now, Inspector Hislop saw the bullet strike um, Constable McKenzie in the forehead and travel basically upwards over his scalp. So he collapsed, but he realised like that's not fatal because it's kind of went a weird way. So he then goes over to Constable McKenzie, puts the gun to his head and fires. Now, Detective Constable John Campbell and Constable John Sellers 
are both fine by this point. So Constable Sellers had actually seen Inspector Hislop shot and he ran into the bathroom and shut the door because he had a radio. So from there, he bravely sent out calls for help on his pocket radio, which he knew would draw the attention of Howard on his murder. Like, that would basically get people. Like, he was like, if I send out this and say that he's shooting police, of course, they're going to come and try and help with things. So thankfully, these calls were heard in the nearby Southern Police Station. Um, but he didn't know what they were saying back because he'd actually read, he left the receiver in the panda car, so he didn't know what they were saying back. Um, Howard held the calls for help and shouted on John Sim, we need to get that bastard, he's got a pocket radio. The gunman made strenuous efforts to get into the bathroom and they basically couldn't, so Constable Sellers continually called for help on his radio while holding the door closed. Um, he attempted to get Seller, like he attempted to, sorry, his attempt to get in Sellers' gun like failed and the gunman saw Inspector Hislop stir. He went over to him and basically put the gun to the inspector's head. So this is Inspector Hislop, who the bullet failed to go off. He then shot him. He goes, sees that he's not dead, puts the gun to his head, and the trigger clicks again. So the gun had jammed a second time. So incredibly, this all took, like, less than a minute. And it was at this stage that basically Detective Constable Campbell came from the living room to see Howard's gun at Inspector Hislop's head. So he basically dragged him to the floor there was a furious kind of struggle going on and the killer, um, Howard Wilson, kept calling John to come to his assistance but he made no in no attempt to intervene and eventually Campbell succeeded in wresting the gun away from Howard and basically injured his hand in the process but that is all he done. Now Campbell manages to get up with the gun covering both men and backs out towards the door and that is when Sergeants Kenneth McIver, Alistair Allen and answering Constable Sellers like they, that's who they answered the calls came rushing in and arrested all the men So Detective Constable McKenzie was found dead at the scene and Constable Barnett was taken to the Victoria Infirmary but he died um, five days later So meanwhile Donaldson who had fled the scene was basically wandering aimlessly around the area like I can't really imagine his mindset like you've kind of known what's going on um you've kind of seen this all happen so I think he was going to probably turn himself in however he actually went home and the police detective inspector John Watson was waiting there with CIDRF um, officers to arrest him so this news goes out all over the area and the three are put in a cell in Craigie Street. Now, they had an armed guard, but not to protect others from them, but the opposite. Now, they're being held in a police station where people have watched their colleagues die. So police are probably wanting to get in there and batter them as well. So they actually had to keep them guarded. Following their arrest, all three were charged with murder, attempt murder and armed robbery at two banks. They basically made three appearances at the Sheriff Court in Glasgow, the last being on the 6th of February 1970. Now, the Crown by then had decided to drop the murder charges against the two companions, which I think is fair. Like, I do. I think that's really fair because they actually, they, they robbed the bank. Yeah, that was wrong. But they, like, as you said, Donaldson fled and the other guy had nothing to do with it. I think Howard Wilson was the person that should be done for that. Um, For Howard, basically, the widow's, had then, like, off the murdered police, had um, held a rally to bring back the death penalty. So Scotland had abolished the death penalty by then, but they actually wanted to bring it back to have him face the death penalty. And Howard Wilson would have definitely got the death penalty and would definitely have hung, but they didn't bring it back. But at one point, they actually thought they were going to have to seriously look at it because the rallies kept continuing. On the 13th of February, 
1978 at the High Court in Edinburgh, the three accused appeared before Lord Justice Clerk Lord Grant. Ian Donaldson and John Sim were basically happy to help the prosecution and they were happy to be tried as bank robbers, not murderers. So the two men were sentenced to 12 years imprisonment each. Howard Wilson was sentenced to life imprisonment with a recommendation that he should serve a minimum of 25 years and like 12 years imprisonment as well for the robbery charges. Um, and these sentences were to run concurrently. Now, the police officers that died were both married. Detective Constable Mackenzie left a widow and Constable Barrett left a widow and two children. Of the three officers who survived, Inspector Andrew Hislop suffered the most, like parts of the bullet were still deeply embedded in his neck. And after months on sick leave, he returned to duty, but actually because of the shock and his experience and such, he was unfit to carry on. And in June 1971, he resigned from the force, which he'd been a long serving officer and that was his favourite, like he loved his job, but he was forced to resign. He moved to the Isle of Isla and he was actually never able to walk again. And when I looked into it, he died early 2000s. On the 29th of September 1970, it was announced that Her Majesty the Queen had approved awards for um, the George Medal, which is the highest medal you can get, to Inspector Hislop and Detective Constable Campbell. Awards of the Queen's Police Medal, sorry, for the gallantry were awarded to Detective Constable Mackenzie and Constable Barnett, um, even though they had passed away. In November 1970, all five officers were awarded the Glasgow Corporation Medal for bravery. Howard Wilson was sent to Peterhead Prison and actually I wasn't I wasn't sure what to expect of him in prison but he was an absolute nightmare. He joined in the infamous Peterhead riot and risked six officers lives. He then went to Porterfield Prison and lived in a segregation cage and I'd never heard of them before and it is literally what you think it is. It's a metal cage with literally like a pot for your toilet. That is it. Um, and he had six years added on to his sentence because of the riots. His cell neighbour was a man called Jimmy Boyle and he, they together they held another riot and an officer was stabbed. Um, I don't know if they stabbed him, but this was in Porterfield Prison. He again was, like Jimmy Boyle, I think was a, a gangster, I think. I can't find out much. Howard Wilson actually went on to write a book and it was published in 1994. And it was about a mass murder in New York. I think it did well simply because of who wrote it. Um. He was moved to Castle Huntley Prison and he got more freedom there. But in 2002, Howard Wilson was actually released from prison under the terms of the European Convention on Human Rights. So this means it's illegal for someone not to know the date. They can try and seek freedom. So it was examined in 2002 when he kind of appealed that and it was considered time served. So he served 33 years. Howard Wilson, as far as I'm aware, now lives in Perth and he lives a very normal life. He kind of just keeps to himself. But that is the story of Howard Wilson. Samantha, what are your thoughts on that? That was absolutely crazy. Mm -hmm. I, I've heard of Harold Wilson before. His name's Howard. That's what I meant. <laughs> I've heard of Howard. Who's before. Harold? I don't Maybe I've heard of him too, but I mean, um, all that for a bit of money in the end of the day, that's all it was for. And he seems like, he seems like an awful person. Because it wasn't like he, you know, when you go into prison, it wasn't like he reformed or he was like, oh, shit, I've done something bad here. He took yeah, part yeah. in the riots. He had to go in a cage and then to only serve 33 years, then have a normal yeah. life. You're like, that is mental for the life that he took and then the way he acted about it. But again, who am I to judge? Like, I can't, but it, well, no, it's I think, crazy. You know what? I think if money, money times are hard and especially 
now, like, the, you know, the cost of living crisis, everything like that, money times are really, really difficult. So, do you know, I think I would even have more respect if he robbed a bank. I think, actually, it would just be like, right, do you know what? He's got kids to provide for, he's robbed a bank. He, he, they didn't hurt anyone in the bank robbery, he's fine. But, like, when he got caught, why couldn't he just accept that he got caught? Yeah. Do you know exactly. what I mean? It's actually this whole faff of then shooting the police officers and that's when I'm just like, nope, actually, do you know, if you'd just done this bank robbery, which I know is still a big crime, we're not saying it's not, but actually that would be more justifiable and there you go. They would have probably got less than 12 years. I think it's because of everything that came with this case that they even got 12 years. Absolutely. 